Just a note, this episode does contain some coarse language and references to suicide. How challenging it is, how disempowering it is as a parent or as a teacher wanting to help, wanting to get support, trying to do your best. That letter was sent to the board. There was a report of all the bad things he was doing to say, hey, we need to exclude this kid. Let's get him out of here. Let's make him someone else's problem because we don't like him. We don't want him here. He's causing a problem. But very important, that's often forgotten, you need an influence for that voice. The student feel my voice is not just listened to, but has actually power, is given the due weight. Education. It's the central theme in any discussion around equity, outcomes and quality of life for neurodivergent kids. In Aotearoa, we pride ourselves on an inclusive education system. But is that really the experience for kids who learn differently? Kia ora, I'm Sonia Gray and this is No Such Thing As Normal, where we explore the beautiful, complex world of neurodiversity. Over the next two episodes, we ask, is our education system really meeting the needs of neurodivergent children, their families and the teachers that support them? Are all these accommodations, recommendations, improvisations actually working? And if not, why not? You heard from Rich Rowley in episode one of this series. He's an in-demand business consultant with a master's degree who is passionate about education. But his own experience at school wasn't a good one. I was not engaged with anything, thought I was stupid, you get told you're naughty all the time. You know, and I used to, like homework, I could never do homework, never, never, never. And I remember, like there were some teachers, if you didn't do the homework, you you know, chances were you'd get a couple of belts or a smack around the hand when you went in. And I remember just like, even knowing that, knowing the consequences, you know, some physical punishment, and I can remember just walking around the fields, around where my parents lived, just thinking, oh, God, I should be doing this work. I should be doing this work. Why can't I do it? And just, you know, I, I can distinctly remember that happening time after time after time. And as I got older, there was just this feeling of, I suppose I always felt like I was just a fucking alien. Like I was, I never really fitted in. Of course, things have changed since Rich was at school. Corporal punishment is long gone, and we understand the importance of creating environments that work for all kids, including those with learning differences. But is that the reality on the ground? Rich Rowley doesn't think so. In his opinion, the system is still based on an old model, which is about compliance and conformity. You know, it's really, fundamentally, at really deep levels, it's not changed, and that sort of destroys my soul. Because my kids are going through that system and still being tuned out and spat out of it. Like, that, that, it hurts me deeply. If you're struggling in that system, what struggling means is you're getting damaged. And then if you're beyond struggling and just kind of getting tuned up and spat out by that system, that's, like, incredibly damaging. And that damage stays with you for life. That's trauma. And it's nobody's fault. I, this is, I'm not blaming educators. Anybody who works in that sector is not their fault. At all. Every educators are my heroes. Anybody who works in a school or any kind of education bit, they're my heroes because it's the hardest job there is and it's the most important job it is. It's just the system has been built to just acknowledge and reward 
a certain kind of cognition. And many parents agree that despite the best efforts of so many, their autistic, ADHD, dyslexic kids are still not well cared for. In the last episode, we met Kimmy and her son, Ihaka. I had more questions for Kimmy, so on a horrendous day in Tamaki Makoto, I met up with her at school pickup. Kimmy likes to get there early because Ihaka doesn't usually make it through the day. He's exhausted and he'll usually be somewhere other than the classroom. So Kimmy and I sit in the car and We're wait for the rain to ease. How are you? For example, he likes the Fatty Puka Puka, so the library. Um, so I'll just pop my head in the air and maybe 50% of the time he, he might be there if he's not in class. And is he allowed to just, um, do they know that by the end of the day he's kind of overstimulated and he needs to, that, that's fine? That's fine? Um, yes, I think they've, yeah, they've stopped fighting that part of it. Um, the only thing is that, yeah, he's, he's out of sight. Um, from, and that worries you? Oh, yeah. Of course it worries you. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> My daughter was also a runner at primary school, so I know the anxiety that is present at every single school pickup, because you're never quite sure where your child's going to be or even if they're going to be there. But Kimmy says Ihaka really does do his best to hold it together at Kura. For someone who doesn't enjoy school, he copes really well. He does mask a lot, and so, as you know, you do pay for it when they get home. But he really, I think he always tries to see the good in things. And we're really lucky that his kayako understand the things that, you know, that, that give him joy. So, um, you know, when they can, they do their best. Ihaka is nine years old now. He's autistic, ADHD, he has sensory issues and possible global developmental delay. So school was always going to be a massive challenge. And Kimmy says what's really key for the teachers to understand is how loaded he is compared to the other kids. The way that noise affects him, the way that the social, the communication that he's not understanding, how all of that is extra for him on top of what he's supposed to be learning. So he is tired. He's tired already within the first hour. So I think understanding that he's actually already working harder, about 50% to you know 80% harder than those other kids, think is really important for them to understand and also for us to understand you know like well you did this today um yesterday what's different about today and then actually asking ourselves well what is different about today what's happened so far you know like just just little things like that and um it just seems so simple when you hear it someone that does know is helen mcdonald she's been a senko for 15 years in primary and secondary schools a SENCO, if you don't know, stands for Special Education Needs Coordinator. It's an optional role in a school, but most do have them. Sometimes it's a standalone job, but often it's taken on by the deputy principal. Neurodiverse kids are the most easily traumatised kids. Their whole kind of day is spent in a particular nervous system state and to be around what a neurotypical adult would just see as a bad day, you know, and, and how often as, as adults do we say we had a bad week? Well, that was just a full five days a week of being in a war zone for that child and having to stay hypervigilant and all the energy that goes into just keeping themselves safe and managing their own behaviour. And so a teacher can go home thinking that, 
that child, you know, oh, they had an all right week. But that kid found it absolutely horrific. The SENCO has a critical role to play in making sure that kids with special education needs get the right support and that their teachers are supported as well. Helen says a key part of the role is transitioning kids from primary school or intermediate into high school. We create lists very simply where if a child, say, has behavioural issues that are going to need to be managed or are presumed to be taxing for a teacher, they'll have a little asterisk beside them. So basically, when your child is going into a high school setting, they get grouped in with a lot of other kids who have behaviours right beside them. So they all have the same asterisks, but everybody's on that bit of paper for very different reasons. But when we start viewing kids by just asterisks, this is where the funnelling starts to happen. So... A good Senko obviously goes and has personal relationships with those kids and those families and finds out what the backstory is. But you're always starting off as an asterisk. And an asterisk is seen as added work and added weight to a teacher's role. That's why it needs to be spread. And you also need to keep certain asterisks away from other asterisks. And that's just like part of what your child's stepping into. They're stepping into a system where they're already being identified as an asterisk. And thus, whenever the teacher's looking at your child as a role on our computer screen because you get 120 in a week there's always going to be that asterisk there so people are coming with preconceptions about about that asterisk and it's how on board they are with actually hearing the story of that child as much as I do love being a Senko it's a huge responsibility because if you don't do your job you are actively hurting families and that can't kind of be understated how much a child's negative experience in a school can impact a family, and I really understand that. Someone who is feeling the impact is Sarah Hinchy. She's the mother of two autistic girls, one of whom also has selective mutism, and she's found advocating for her daughters an ongoing and exhausting battle. My daughters both internalise their behaviours, so they just fly under the radar and, and nobody really cares. Well, I mean, I don't know if they care, but they just don't know what to do. But because they're not disruptive and not a challenge for the rest of the class, there's no extra learning that's taken for them. But they're they're academically impacted, they're socially impacted, but because it's not impacting their teaching, and they don't really do much. But I remember that first meeting and I asked them, this, my daughter was only newly diagnosed, and I asked them what their education was on autism. And they both looked at each other and they rolled their eyes. And so this is the attitude that I've had the entire time. It's really challenging as a parent. The Senko at Sarah's daughter's school has since done some training, which Sarah's really grateful for. But overall, there's not much education on neurodiversity for teachers. In a teaching degree, there are one or two papers, but they're optional. And school SENCOs aren't actually required to have any extra qualifications. But many schools do see the value of upskilling their specialist teachers to better meet the needs of neurodivergent kids. Hello, how are you? I'm at Massey University to meet Maximiliano. He's a lecturer in neurodiversity and inclusion. His course is really popular with SENCOs and other specialist teachers and coordinators. Max says he starts each course with an exercise which challenges his students to address their biases around neurodiversity. 
So it's about being aware of them so you can identify them. So yes, when you do the exercise of asking, explore your own bias in regard to just normality, for example, what you thought normality was or what you thought neurodiversity or neurodivergent was. After telling them all this kind of more complex way of looking at it, people really see it like, oh gosh, I didn't know I had those like pre-judgment, preconceived ideas about things. And we all do in a way. So it's always a good exercise to like self-reflect on these. And we all have biases. Our own ideas about what autism or ADHD or dyslexia look like. And Max says this is something that teachers have to let go of if they want to truly support the tamariki in their care. It's changing your perception, changing the way you see the child, moving away from all those stories we have and biases we have around like the medical model of like disorder, delayed and so on. The moment you start seeing someone for who they are and what they can do, you change the way you act towards those children. And so for me, that's where it starts, seeing them for who they are, looking at what they can do, not always focusing on what they cannot do, but taking yourself away from those bias because pretty much we make sense of the world by the story we're told about them and so we have to be aware of them so that we don't enclose our student in those narratives and have them grow up feeling that they need to be fixed because that's the only story we had about them. And longtime Senko Helen McDonald agrees. If you're all you're seeing of a child is a particular behaviour, particularly at the management level, the stories that you're telling your colleagues and the stories and the the narratives that you're passing on and perpetuating that can have extremely negative impacts for it and I think it's a high pressure role we talk about school to prison pipeline and when you kind of break that down about disadvantagedness and neurodiversity and the likelihood of those individuals the kind of outcomes that they can have if they're not managed well the problem, though, is there just aren't enough specialist teachers and resources to meet the need. Having a student voice plan or something like that that expresses what your child really needs is so important because finding time for those conversations for your child, unless they're like a big asterisk, unless they're a huge learning need, we, those conversations just aren't going to get had. You know, there's going to be other pressing concerns. There are other... I know you had the experience of being told, you know, there's, there's kids here with real problems... Yeah, because there are, there are kids there with... And it's not to say that your child's real problems isn't real problems, but there's literally children who will be burning something down. And yeah. that's how schools are kind of set up. We do want to set up plans and make and do things to improve children's behaviours. But usually it's only the stuff that's literally burning down. Like the, the ministry lady told me once, if it's not real sex or real blood, don't ring. So if they're just talking about it, if they're just threatening it, that's not actually it. And, and what has to be really clear is that this is no one's fault. Oh. Everyone's just so stretched. Absolutely. It's just society. Don't ring unless it's real sex or real blood. An indication, I guess, of just how stretched the Ministry of Education are. But most kids who aren't coping aren't going to signal it with blood or sex or fire. Sarah Hinchy's 12-year-old daughter, Olive, doesn't act out. When she's overwhelmed, she shuts down. She struggles with a selective mutism. She's autistic. And so when she's in stressful situations, she sort of breaks down. She shuts down and she can't talk. She can't speak. She can't really do anything. Her, her face looks really like she's in a grump. 
And so people think she's being rude or mean. Sarah tells me that Olive isn't happy at school, that at the end of last year she told another student, I don't want to exist. And Sarah had found a note in her pocket that said, why can't I just die? Which as a parent was traumatising. Basically, I asked for uh, the teachers to have more education on autism and selective mutism because they don't feel my child is safe. They don't understand. They don't understand her. And um, I've I've got two children on the spectrum. Um, So I've been with this school for nearly 10 years now. The, The email I got was basically, oh, well, Olive's leaving at the end of the year. So we don't have time to do any training and we may look at training in the future, but we need to focus on her transition to high school. And they were saying that, oh, I understand that you're anxious about Olive transitioning to high school. and That's not the problem at all, at all. I'm just tired. I'm so tired and I'm not the only one. This is not a unique situation, unfortunately. This is just a day in a life of a parent of a neurodiverse kid. It's not okay. It's not okay. And advocating for your child is super tiring. Sarah says her disillusionment with the system motivated her to educate herself. She's now a PhD candidate at Canterbury University. And while she's doing it to help her own children, her driving force is to make a difference to the thousands of others like them. Yeah, I'm just so, so lucky that I have supports. But like, what about those kids that don't? What about them? I need to do more because I need to do something for those kids as well. It's not just my kid. And that's what really, really irks me about the school is that everyone will benefit from this sort of education. The teachers will benefit, the autistic kids, the, you know, all the neurodiverse kids will probably benefit but also the other students will benefit. This is the thing that's often missed when we're talking about support and upskilling teachers. All kids benefit, not just those with learning differences. And a note here, as part of her PhD, Sarah Hinchy is doing a research study on how autistic kids learn to read. And she's still recruiting participants, autistic and neurotypical children aged 8 to 12. If you're interested, details are in the show notes. And as for Kimmy, mum of Ihaka, she says his school are recognising his unique needs. But it's a process. I mean, at least I've stopped asking him to look at them. You know, like that was a huge thing for him. Oh, tell me about that. Oh, so he quite often won't give eye contact. It can actually be painful for them to, to look, you know, directly at someone. And the way it's set up is, you know, you sit still and you look at the teacher. And um, even when he's talking to me sometimes, like he'll give me, be giving me kisses, but his eyes are all the way over there. I don't know if you saw that the other day, but oh, yeah, because like, yeah, yeah. he doesn't often, there's only very few times where he looks me in my eyes and that's okay. Kimmy has a wealth of knowledge, like so many parents of neurodivergent kids. She and her husband, Pitipi, are constantly researching and reflecting and trying to be the best they can be for their kids. But advocating for your child can be even more complicated for Māori whānau. And I asked Kimi what her thoughts are on this. We kind of just got told to not worry about it and we don't label. And yeah, and he'll be okay because, you know, he's got the support 
um, you know, he's got a whānau that love him. And all those things are true, but I'm not at school with him. And he still needs to fit into a system that, that still needs to tick a box. And they don't have wraparound support. And unfortunately, you need, a, you need to go and get a diagnosis for that. Um, but I think for Māori whānau, that's difficult. And as soon as they know your Māori, I felt like they pretty much went straight to parenting courses. This is just behavioural. You need to be more disciplined or change your approach. I actually didn't disagree with, you know, we needed to change our approach because that wasn't working. And the parenting courses, some of them were great, but they didn't help us understand why. They didn't help us get support at school. And it's really, it's risky. The risk for families, particularly Māori whānau, is real. You put yourself in a vulnerable position when you're honest about how much you and your family are struggling. This is not uncommon, and we'll explore it more in a later episode. At times, Kimmy says she felt like a terrible mum, that her son was totally out of control, and it was implied the problem lay with parenting, which couldn't be further from the truth. Kimmy and her husband, Pitipi, are the most devoted, loving parents. But it's a tough and lonely road. I think I didn't really realise until we spoke the other day, and like, I don't think I've met another Māori whānau who are actually on this this whole this journey not 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 that their child is going through the same things I've met plenty of whānau but someone who actually is also being really open about it and I think that's why I was just full-on word vomiting everywhere on Sunday because I was just like I, I just felt so I think relieved and validated and understood I think I said this to you the other day as soon as we find someone who we think like can help us they leave their position like <laughs> there's burnout like on so many levels in the ministry and as soon as we find someone who or connects with haka next minute they're gone as well i don't think i realized how lonely it was until yeah the other day when i spoke to you it can be really lonely and there's no denying that school is for the most part still tough for kids who are autistic dyslexic adhd or any of the other numerous conditions but there are good intentions, and maybe it's just a matter of time. And for two late-diagnosed ADHDers like Helen McDonald and I, things do seem to have improved. Do you know what we, we should take heart from? In the time since you and I were at school, there's no way we would have been picked up at school. No. We got through. There is so much more support for kids like us now. Yeah. So much more understanding, and so... It's very easy to pick what isn't there, but we've come a hell of a long way. Teachers are always wanting and are a lot better now at responding to additional needs. But that original thought that pops in when they see the asterisks and they read the read the diagnosis is, what does that mean for me? What am I going to have to do to meet those needs? And well, it's more work, is what they think. Yeah, and for people who know, they realise it isn't more work. It's just a different way of approaching approaching it. But until they've had that experience, until they've heard that narrative and that story of how it is just a slightly different way of looking at something and it's an adjustment of your priorities, not an adjustment of your values, then they're more willing and, and it kind of grows and grows. So it is just a time thing, I think, as well. But like the more exposure people have to aspirational narratives of people with disabilities and, and with neurodiversity, the easier that they'll be able to paint pictures like that for other people. 
Next time on No Such Thing As Normal, we go further down the education rabbit hole. Yeah, I I had some really supportive teachers. It was my high school economics teacher. And she said, look, Tom, you're neurodiverse and this is your superpower. And I thought, well, how can my ADHD be my my superpower? It's, you know, related to all these negative things like my overthinking, my worrying, my self-destructive thoughts. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It helps other people find it. No Such Thing as Normal is produced and presented by me, Sonia Gray. The editor is Nathan King. Production coordinator is Lucy Cole. Arwen O'Connor and Mitchell Hawkes are executive producers. This series is brought to you by the New Zealand Herald and Team Uniform, and it's made with the support of New Zealand On Air. New episodes of No Such Thing as Normal are available every Saturday, wherever you get your podcasts.